seats again. My friend Jeremy Moses with us from Grace London Church. Uh, great, uh, my Grace, uh, this Grace and I were up there two weeks ago and I was speaking up there. It's a church we have a particular friendship partner with. Enjoy being with. Um, it's a great church. Started by Andrew Haslam nine years ago. Planted there in Waterloo in South London and been really intentional about trying to build a Christian community, making disciples in a part of of London where there's huge fluidity, lots of turnover of people, congregation is uh, largely younger, lots of 20s, loads of students, very ethnically diverse, so uh, a great encouraging congregation. We loved being with them two weeks ago. Jeremy is one of the pastors there, and uh, in this series that we're doing, um, The Air We Breathe, looking at why we think as we do and some of the implications for that and how we should approach some of the complicated cultural issues we're dealing with, I thought it'd be great to have a different voice. Jeremy has got... Uh, some great things to say in these areas, and I thought rather than me always talking about it, we could have somebody who sounds a little bit different coming and helping us and encouraging us and blessing us. Uh, this is also the first time since we've been meeting in two congregations as we now are since January that we are having the speakers speak at both here and our other congregation down on Ashley Road. So we've switched the order of things slightly, and as soon as Jeremy finishes speaking this morning, uh, Scott will be whizzing him down to 502 to speak down there as well. So that's why we've changed things around this morning, but we're so grateful to have Jeremy with us this morning. Uh, can we welcome him? Well, good morning. It's very good to be with you. Um, I've told some of you already, I live in central London, and last night I came down and had stayed at Matt and Grace's house, and I've had the best night's sleep I've had in a long time. Um, I have three children under five years old, <laughs> um, so that's the number one reason. But also in London, there's always light and sound. It's very kind of always on, whereas I was, I was darkness last night, and it was and hosted wonderfully. So I, I fully recommend a stay at the Hotel Hosier if you can manage that. I guess most of you probably don't have the same need for the stay that I do, but um, I think I'll, I'll come again if possible. Um, you can decide it after this. Um, so yeah, it's wonderful to come and speak to you uh, this morning. Uh, we are very grateful for our partnership with Advance and with Matt. Matt's come and spoken at Grace a number of times. Uh, he's also given input to our elders at Grace. And so I, I think you know, most of you know Matt has a kind of role of pastor of pastors and, and leads Advance in the UK. And he's a wonderful blessing uh, to many in the church in the UK in Advance. And we're really grateful for the partnership we have. So I'm really delighted to come and uh, be with you this morning. And this morning, we are going to talk about sexuality. We'll have a session on Wednesday evening. If you can join us on Zoom, we'll be talking about trans. Uh, but today, we're going to be talking about sexuality, about same-sex relationships. This whole question of how do we engage with culture on this really live and big issue of sexuality? And as I tell you we're going to be talking about sexuality, I suspect there are a variety of reactions going on in the room. I think number one is confusion. And what I mean by that is the culture seems to be moving so quickly on this question of sexuality that it is hard sometimes to even get a handle on what exactly does our culture think? What exactly is the kind of right way to think from a cultural perspective on the question of sexuality? I think some of us are feeling confused about what exactly is biblical teaching on this subject. We're starting to question some of what has been received Christian orthodoxy for the last 2,000 years. I think for some of us, there's disappointment in this topic. We have witnessed recently churches uh, departing from what has been accepted biblical truth 
uh, for the last two millennia, thinking about the Church of England and blessing uh, gay partnerships. Um, and so there's a sense of disappointment in some of us. I think probably for many of us, there's a sense of fear. Fear because we understand, if we're familiar at all with the Christian scriptures, that the Christian worldview on the whole question of sexuality is radically different to the cultural understanding of sexuality and relationships. And we think, how on earth am I going to have my faith in the public square? Some of you are teachers or doctors or have roles in public life. You think, how am I going to interact when I know that my convictions are so different to those in our culture? And among that, there'll be questions. Questions like, how do I raise my children in the context of this culture? If I'm asked to wear a pride lanyard at work, should I wear it? What does that communicate? Uh, How do I share my convictions in a way that people hear our love? And in all of that, I think there's a real temptation to silence. A temptation to silence, to say, well, I'm just not going to talk about this issue because it's kind of created such a division. And really behind all of those different reactions, the great kind of unsaid reality there is that there is this clash between the Christian worldview and our culture. There'll be many in our culture who view the traditional Christian sexual ethic as homophobic. Uh, Just witness uh, Kate Forbes, a member of Scottish Parliament, who's running to be the uh, leader of the Scottish National Party. Um, She articulated in an interview that she wouldn't have voted for gay marriage. And as she did so, a number of her supporters kind of revoked their support. They said, I was supporting her, but now I'm not. And and, and she received a a good deal of grief in in the newspapers and in her, within her own party as she did that. There, I think for many, even a step aside from this question of sexuality, of same-sex relationships, when people look at the general Christian approach on this topic, there will be a, an underlying feeling that Christianity is repressive and prudish. They say, in our culture, it's really normal to say, if I feel a sexual desire, desire I should be able to act on that desire. And actually to not act on that desire is to constrain myself and repress myself and to to almost damage myself in the process. And so the idea that you would call perhaps some people to live in single celibacy, it feels an anathema. It feels impossible. It feels unthinkable to many. And in the context of that great clash, what I want to do for you this morning is help us to regain confidence. As Christians, we need to regain confidence to show why the Christian sexual ethic makes sense, why it tells a better story than our culture's narrative around sexuality. As I speak about the subject, I'm aware that this is a personal subject For many of us, some of us know family and friends who may have even been pushed away or turned away from the Christian faith because of the perception around this topic. Well, this is also a very personal topic for me. I've been thinking about this topic for the last 20 years or more. Uh, I've been experiencing something of the the clash between our culture's approach and the Christian sexual ethic um, for the last couple of decades at least. And really, I first experienced that clash as an outsider looking in. I grew up in a secular Jewish family. I didn't have any Christian upbringing. Uh, but I realized, probably from the kind of early mid-teens, that I was exclusively attracted towards guys at the time. 
And so I came out to most of my friends, as you kind of would in our cultural story, by the time I was 16. And it became a big part of my identity and relationships and everything else that follows from that. And at the same time, in my teens, I was being drawn or interested in Christianity, drawn to the person of Christ. And I got hold of a gospel and started to read it and found Christ deeply compelling. But as I was being drawn to Christianity, I was aware, I started to become aware of the cost this would have for my life. I started to ask myself the question, what would this mean for me and my sexuality? And I went online, I went on, um, at the time, this was 20 years ago, and the kind of internet was not what it is today, but everyone, there were all these different websites trying to find a way of justifying gay relationships from a biblical perspective. Because I thought, well, if I can do that, then I can become a Christian. But I became, kind of against my will, I became convinced that there wasn't a way to justify gay relationships from a Christian perspective. And so, at the time, I reluctantly walked away. I said, well, I'm not willing to give up the prospect of being in a relationship uh, to follow Christ. Fast forward a few years, and I kind of was in the middle of university, and I'd really spent my life up to that point trying to pursue success, trying to be as successful as possible so I could say, I'm better than anyone who'd been mean to me or kind of uh, prove myself to the world. And I got to the middle of my second year at university, and the success that I pursued, I kind of achieved it. I was running my own business, and I was doing well academically. I was at Oxford University, and I just felt like my life was, was empty. Effectively, the success that I thought would bring me satisfaction didn't. And quite inexplicably, I, um, I, I basically connected, reconnected with, I had a Christian friend who displayed uh, the love of Christ to me so well, and I, I surrendered my life to Christ. And at that point, I quickly realized that following Christ would mean being willing to submit every part of my life to him. And so at the time, I, I came to the conclusion that that means Christ would call me to single celibacy for the rest of my life. And, I, at the t- and then, so as, then as a Christian, I experienced this clash because I had my non-Christian family and friends outraged at the choice of single celibacy. My, my, I lived with six guys at the time who were all kind of uni lads and going out and getting drunk and doing everything else that comes with that. And, uh, and they thought, what you are choosing to do is unthinkable. One of them said, if you choose to do this, you will commit suicide. You, can, no, you cannot suppress this, uh, the desire for sex in your life. Actually, I had my brother and his girlfriend at the time pull me aside one Christmas and say, you need to embrace who you are. You need to live this out. It was unthinkable to them that I would choose single celibacy. And yet, for the five years that I was in that stage of life, I experienced a far more relationally rich life in the family of God, in the church. I felt accepted and loved in that context, and I felt a far more satisfying mode of life. And I've also experienced Christ's restoring work in this area. As I came to faith, Christ took over my life in a profound way and just started to reshape everything, started to reshape my identity. I said, because I'm a child of God, my, that is the primary thing about who I am. And so my sexual attractions are not, do not define me anymore. So I stopped using the label gay and said I'm a Christian with same-sex attraction. I experienced a profound sense of the love of our Father in heaven, which was a deeply restoring experience. Layers of shame washed away, experiencing the love of my Father in heaven. A really profound sense of security followed from that. And in doing so, I also experienced a real restoration of my masculinity. You see, when you're growing up gay, you don't, I felt very much like an outsider with guys, very much like I wasn't one of the guys. And as I experienced welcome into the church and a sense of brotherhood with my brothers around me and that sense of my Father's love, 
I said, no, I, I'm a guy, and this is part of who I am, and this is and a restoration of that masculinity that followed. It meant I didn't need to look to other guys to complete some sense of lack within me. And against my expectations, I even experienced a change in attractions. Now, I still experience attraction towards guys, but I started to experience attraction towards girls for the first time. And to be honest, the only way I could describe it is like going through puberty again, in the sense of just noticing curves and things like that that I just hadn't really noticed um, beforehand. Now, we could, I don't think we can ever promise a change in attractions for someone who comes to follow Christ. And ultimately, that's not even the goal. The goal of the person who comes to Christ is Christ-likeness, not heterosexuality. But I don't think we can deny the possibility because we believe the power of the cross is sufficient for all our brokenness and our sin, even for our sexual brokenness. So a little while later, I uh, started dating Jen and obviously told her everything, and she was amazing, my wife. She's at home with those three under fives right now, um, or trying to navigate church, which is challenging. Um, but she did, said it didn't change anything, and we you know, walked through with, into marriage with the support of our community around us with a conviction, that a growing sense of sexual attraction for each other, and we're now married in every sense of the word, and yeah, this has been a, a wonderful journey, really, of God's restoring power. But the reason why I share my story with you is because I think it's important that we start this topic with, by kind of putting away fear. I said we're fearful of culture, we're fearful about being outsiders. We need to lay that aside and actually say, no, we are aliens. We are resident aliens. We are, we are exiles in this culture. We are going to take a different approach. And we believe in a living God who's making a call and an invitation to our gay friends and our, our, our friends who might disagree with us and think we're homophobic. And more than that, we believe in a God who restores, who works in our lives, and that his love is better than life. And so we have a, a kind of command, a missional imperative to actually take this message and to actively, proactively engage with culture on this issue. Are you ready to do that? Okay, so let me then do three things for you this morning. I want to give you a vision of what kingdom sexuality is. What is Christ's call for us in the area of sexuality? I want to then look at how we respond to the confrontation of culture on this issue. And then I want to show you Christ's invitation to the gay person and to show you that that is the better story. So first of all, kingdom sexuality. What is Christ's call for us? Well, I want to turn to, with you to uh, Matthew 19. And... Um, I want to show you, talk you through a passage very briefly. Jesus has asked a question about divorce. And in his response to this question about divorce, Jesus really gives two models of relational sexual flourishing. He gives a picture of lifelong monogamy and singleness for the kingdom. And I want to show you that actually they're more similar than you think. So in Matthew 19, he's asked the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? They're kind of asking, the Pharisees are asking this question because actually there's perhaps a sense in their question even of kind of how far can we go? Where are the circumstances that we can divorce? In which Jesus is being pushed to liberalize the ethics of the culture. And then Jesus takes them back. He doesn't answer the question immediately. He takes them back to the bigger story that we have in Scripture that starts with Genesis. He says, verse 4, 19, verse 4, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what, what God has joined together, let no one separate. He's giving a vision right there of 
the one flesh union of marriage between a man and a woman. He says, this is such, he uses the phrase one flesh. And behind that idea, behind that phrase, is an idea of saying marriage is about a total willingness to give yourself to the other, to combine your lives in totality, your finances, your plans, your purposes, your time, your living arrangements. And it's in that context of that total unity, that intended to be lifelong unity, where he'll go on and explain that adultery is uh, grounds for divorce, but we'll, we'll leave that aside for one for today. In the context of that total commitment to the other, sex is about making the declaration, about living out that reality of total oneness by saying, in this moment, I belong to you, and I give my body to you as a reflection of the union that we have together. It says sex is only right in the context of a radical, lifelong commitment to the other. In, that, in, that, in the security that comes from that, which says, I am yours no matter what, and you are mine no matter what, you are free to give your whole body, to give your whole self away to the other. And it removes the pressure to perform. Instead, it becomes a posture of saying, I love you and I'm willing to give everything to you, including my body. That's lifelong monogamy. But then, in verse 10, the disciples are kind of balking at this idea. They are they're saying, how can, you offer, how can you say this? The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. So if, it's, if, it's, if it's not possible for us to divorce our wives, then we're better not to marry. It feels too much to make commit to lifelong monogamy. And then Jesus replies this. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those, this is the really crucial bit, there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. And I want to call this kingdom celibacy. It says there will be those who, for whatever reason, either aren't married now, but may become married later, or marriage is not an option for them. Perhaps they're exclusively attracted to the same sex, or perhaps they're, for whatever reason, the different circumstances mean they're not married. So they, they will live in single celibacy as a mark of their loyalty to the kingdom. It says, actually, I think this should reframe how we see celibacy. Often we see celibacy as saying, I'm not wanted, and I, no one's sleeping with me because I'm not wanted. Actually, no, this says the reason they are sexually abstinent, the reason why they don't have sex, is because they have a loyalty to their true lover who demands unwavering faithfulness. See, both marriage and singleness point to the gospel. In marriage, we see this in Ephesians, we won't unpack it in loads of detail, but Paul says marriage is a picture, a gospel drama, a, a, a relationship that reenacts the story of Christ coming into the world and being united with his bride, the church. It says husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. It says their marriage is in some way to display this great story that has taken over our lives if we're Christians. It says your marriage should display something of the love that Christ has had for us. It's a weighty responsibility. But it says actually for the single person who is abstaining from sexual activity, they are walking in faithful celibacy. And as they do that, they are saying, one, I have a lover, I have Christ, and I'm committed to him, that I'm walking in faithfulness. And two, 
Christ's love is better than any sexual fulfillment that this world might promise. Christ's love is better than any other lover I might go and pursue. And so I think kingdom monogamy, marriage, and kingdom singleness actually have more in common than you realize. They both speak of the faithfulness of Christ, whether you're choosing to be faithful to your spouse or choosing to be faithful to Christ and walk in sexual abstinence. They also both have self-denial involved. Let's not think that marriage is somehow uh, just then kind of let every desire rip. Every Christian is living in self-denial of some of their, or, or all of their sexual desires. For the married person, you're denying those sexual desires that you might feel for other people other than your spouse. For the single person, you're choosing to deny and to say no to those sexual desires because you have a higher commitment to Christ and a commitment that his ways lead to life. Both also are not fundamentally about their own self-fulfillment. Both marriage and singleness in the kingdom are about giving yourself away. For marriage, it's about a willingness to lay down your life for your spouse and to care for your spouse and your family and, of course, beyond that. But in, in the New Testament, we see that singleness also carries with it that same smell, that same aroma of giving yourself away. Because singleness in the kingdom is not about self-fulfillment, it's about being free, about having, being, uh, one way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 7, of having undivided devotion to the Lord. About saying, actually, with your singleness, you have a freedom to serve God's purposes in a way that actually, as a married man or woman, you don't have. That that singleness actually gives you a, a liberty and a freedom to invest yourself, to pour yourself out on others, and to live a life of love. So whether we're married or single, we will look different to the people around us. Our sexual behavior, whether it's monogamous marriage or single celibacy, is intended to tell a gospel story that we have a lover, we have a, a, a higher loyalty to Christ, and that he is faithful to us, and so we want to live lives of faithfulness. So how do we then deal with the confrontation of culture? We've talked in this series, this series about confronting, connecting with culture, but we're on the receiving end of that confrontation. How do we deal with that? Well, I think I want to suggest to you that our first response in the face of a culture that thinks we're homophobic or alien, should be love. And then as we love people, we get to show them why the Christian story leads to life. We are minority aliens. We are elect exiles. That's the way Peter puts it at the beginning of his letter. We are different. Exile means we don't belong here. This is not our home. Part of dealing with the kind of sexualized culture that we live in means more than ever we will not feel at home in our own culture. That we will have different priorities, a different vision of life, ultimately because our home is not of this world, but our home is with Christ. So we have to be comfortable with being different. As a, with a young church in central London, we're always calling people saying, look, are you aware that to follow Christ is going to involve being different on all sorts of different issues? And perhaps some of you have grown up in a more Christianized context Actually, it's harder to adjust to it, but now we need to adjust to the fact that we are, we are aliens in this culture. In fact, uh, the early Christians and the Jews were called atheists in, Ro- in the Roman culture. And when, it wasn't that they didn't believe in God, it's that at the time they didn't believe in the Roman gods. So they were the only people who didn't believe in those Roman gods. So they were the atheists. And so too, we are the atheists in a culture that believes that sex and sexuality is essential for your flourishing, that you must be in a sexual relationship in order to be happy. We are the atheists. We're the ones who say, actually, the God of sex is not need to be worshipped because we have a better love that we, need, that we already have in Christ. 
So as we engage with culture, the first thing we have to, our first response must be love. We are part of the revolution of love, so to speak, as Christ's love entered into the world. And so our posture in response to the accusation, are we homophobic, do we not love those people who are gay, should be to actually walk with a posture of love. And you see this all the way through. I see it in uh, Mark chapter 2, when Jesus is uh, described much to the consternation of the, uh, of the Pharisees, he is described with hanging out with the, Pharise- uh, with the sinners and tax collectors. Uh, it says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, tax collector, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers in the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're reclining at table with him. They're eating with him. People whose lives do not match up to the biblical vision of life, tax collectors, sinners, people with all sorts of messy past and present, feel comfortable to be in Jesus' presence. Isn't that fascinating? That they feel comfortable to be with him. Do people whose lives do not match up to the biblical vision of life, do they feel comfortable to be in your presence? Do they hear and see you as a person of peace and love? Or do we hide away in a Christian bubble because it's more uncomfortable to have to be willing to enter into the world and engage with this difficult question? Are we like Christ? Do people feel loved to, and to be in our presence? Well, you see this in uh, 1 Peter, where Peter is clear about the um, exile nature of Christians, that we are not of this world, that we are aliens. But then he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live such good lives among the pagans. The temptation in this coming century, I suspect, will be for Christians to withdraw from culture because it would be, it's, le- it's easier that way rather than have to engage with this great cultural clash Peter says you're exiles, but then he says live among the pagans and let them see your life. Let them see your good deeds. I um, had a colleague, uh, his name's Ollie, and I uh, spent some good time with him. He became a good friend of mine, and uh, he asked me my story of coming to faith. And I told him my story of coming to faith, the whole thing. And uh, he said, you are categorically homophobic. Your story is, you are categorically homophobic. And and then I told him... (laughs) And then I said, well, how are we still friends then? You know, like, like, I'm kind of joking about, how are we still friends if I'm categorically homophobic? And he thought for a while, and then he said, actually, no, I, I, no you're, basically, no, you're not, because I see the way you treat Sam, one of our colleagues who's gay. And I, see, I was his manager at the time, and he, I don't think I was doing a, a brilliant job, but you know, the way I was interacting with him and the time I was taking with him as he was struggling with confidence and all sorts of other things, Ollie said, no, I can see you're not homophobic by the way you treat him. So they might accuse you of doing evil, but they see your good deeds. The challenge is to allow Christ to change our hearts and to equip us to be people who look different to the culture, not just in our convictions about sexual ethics, but also in a distinctive posture of love. Isn't that precisely what Jesus calls the disciples to when he calls them to love their enemies? We are not those people who want to cancel our enemies, who say they are kind of a different class of human being to us, We're called to love our enemies. We're called to say, no, they have dignity and worth because they are made in the image of God. Our very doctrine of that, of creation, that says every person is made in the image of God, means we never have the the kind of get-out clause to say they are evil and we are good. It says we're all sinners. 
And so we have the posture of love, a posture of saying, I am a sinner who needs the grace and love of God, just as I believe you do too. Do they know we love them? But love is not just what they need. We also need to show our society that Christianity tells a better story than the current sexual ethic of our culture. So how do we respond to the objections of our culture? Let me give you a few. One of them, people, the objection people will ask is, why are you so repressive? And what they mean by that is, sex is harmless. You know, sex, doesn't, sex is like eating. It's just something you do. Why, why do you kind of put constraints on sex like this? Why can't you just let people eat and you know, order people online with Tinder and pick a person and say, right, I'm just going to go and do whatever. And why, why do you take such a different approach? But we must make the case loudly and clearly that sex is powerful, that you cannot just kind of uh, have a kind of random encounter with someone and just, be, and just be the same afterwards. And actually, if you look in our culture, you can point to lots of things that show the reality that sex is powerful, that it involves a union, a uniting of two people. Think about jealousy. If you know someone who's, who's broken up with someone else, they've been together, and they've, they've slept together, and then they've broken up. And then they, and they, after that experience, they still feel jealousy when that person they used to be with is, is with other people. So why do you feel jealousy? You, should, you shouldn't feel jealousy. You're not together anymore. They're now with somebody else. Why are you feeling jealousy? You're feeling jealousy because you shared something of yourself with them. They were, in a sense, part of who you are. Part, they became, you, you united yourself together with them. It's only natural that you would feel jealous. Actually, no one in our culture really believes sex is harmless. Why does sexual abuse leave such a damaging scar on people's lives. If it's just two people kind of having fun together, if sex is just that, no, sex has the power to, to almost ruin someone's life. Only on Friday, I think it was, that someone was sentenced to 21 months in prison for fil uh, basically putting a video online of his sexual encounter with this woman called revenge porn. So why did the judge hand down that sentence? Because he said there was, that she was violated by his willingness to put a video, of, of, of a sexual video of her online without her consent, she was violated. He says, no, this is, this is precious. This is, sex is powerful. And actually, if our culture takes a moment to think about it, they can see it. They can see show a litany of lives destroyed by unfettered sexual freedoms. Porn addicts, women who, who have uh, experience of uh, body dysmorphia because of the sexualized imagery on, on, our, on our TV screens and everything else that puts a huge deal of pressure to have the perfect body. That actually our culture, when you look at it, is kind of walking in the, a huge amount of brokenness. And actually, it's just our job to point that out to people and to say, look, can you see where the society's sexual ethic is leading to? This is not leading to flourishing. The second thing people might say to us is, we are petty and arbitrary. They say, why, some, why can some people have sex and not others? Why can straight people have sex, so to speak, but not gay people? What we need to show people is that sex is not just two people, forgive me, getting naked and kind of having fun together. Actually, it's much more than that. It speaks of, well, one thing we'd say is it's procreative. It has incredible power. That as two people come together, male and female, that has the potential to create life. I mean, sex is not just interchangeable between, you can't just take the woman out and put a man there and it's the same thing. Actually, sex has always marvelous in one sense because of the power that exists within that union. Also has symbolic power. It speaks of Christ and the church. 
It's a picture of marriage, a picture of, the, of others coming together, male and female, and the incredible miracle of those two lives being combined together. You cannot just switch out one person of a, and put two people of the same sex together and call it the same thing. And finally, there'll be those who say, Christianity is an offense to who I am. They say, your Christian faith is an offense because you're saying, there's something wrong with me. I'm LGBT, I'm lesbian or gay or whatever, and by saying I can't have sex, or by saying you're calling me to single celibacy, that's an offense to who I am. And what I would say to them is, Christ has a far better identity for you than your sexual identity. You do not need to identify yourself by your sexual desires. Christ invites you into relationship with him, and he will give you a new name, a much better identity than just being defined by what you sexually desire. He will call you beloved. Isn't that much better than finding an identity in your sexual desires? But it's not just enough to articulate why Christians are different. We must make Christ's invitation to our gay friends to show them that following Christ is the best thing for them and how it connects with their instincts for life. And the way we connect is by showing that Christ connects with your ultimate desires. We say sexual desire is real. We say your desire for love is real. And for some, that's why Christianity is unappealing. But we say those, aren't, those desires aren't wrong. But we say your desires for intimacy, your desire for unconditional love, your desire to be known by another is found in relationship with Christ. We say, we, Grace read it earlier in Psalm 63. Your love is better than life. Your love is better than life. The standing conviction for all of us who follow Christ is that we have found a love that is better than any other love. In Christ's love, we have found something better that means we can say no to other things. It means there's no human being is enough to complete you. Marriage, if you're single, you need to hear this, marriage is not your salvation. It's very easy to look at marriage from the outside and say, I wish I had that. Sexual relationships will not save you. Your partner will not make you whole. Actually, you're going to start living, if you get married, start living with somebody else and having to deal with their sin as well as your sin. Actually, we say behind the desire for sex is a desire for a union that is only fully met in our union with Christ. Peter Kreef, the philosopher, said, talks about sex like this. He says, it gives us subjectively a foretaste of heaven. And the self-forgetting, self-transcending, self-giving, that is what our deepest hearts are designed for, long for, and will not be satisfied until they have, because we are made in God's image. And this self-giving constitutes the inner life of the Trinity. Saying sex is good, it is good. We say it's good because it points to an even better union of giving oneself and being known completely by the living God. That we, will all, we all experience now, in part, and we will experience in fullness when we see Christ face to face. But we also say Christ will call you to die so that you can have life. There is a cost in following Christ. For the gay person who's exclusively attracted to people of the same sex, it, will mean, it might mean ending a relationship or uh, not being in a relationship or being rejected by their community. But yet, have we forgotten that the call to follow Christ involves a call to deny yourself and take up your cross. That that is the call for everyone. Whether it's the Muslim person who is considering following Christ and hears the call, hears the call of Christ, but knows that to follow him may involve ostracization from their community, may involve even rejection by their own flesh and blood. For some who follow Christ around the world, it may involve even losing their life. 
Actually, the gay person or the person coming from a different background might understand that better than we might. Might say, actually, there is a cost in following Christ. That Christ would call you to come and deny yourself. To die to genuine, real desires. And I don't think death feels good. It doesn't feel easy to die. Christ would call you to die. Why? So that you might have life. We say, yes, there's a call to die. Why? Because you find something better. You find life with Christ. And that's better than anything else that you might be called to die for. In Matthew 13, I think this really encapsulates what I'd say to anybody who's coming from the outside. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then, in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. It said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When he found it, he hid it again and sold everything he had. He gave up many things, but in joy, because he found something better. Our willingness to call our gay friends or gay neighbors or gay colleagues to Christ will be out whether or not we believe that life in Christ, even single life in Christ, is better than life without Christ. Think about what it is to experience the love of Christ, the radical security that comes with knowing his love, the knowledge of purpose and meaning as you live under his authority, the conviction that you have a father who's in heaven who's in control of everything. What a wonderful gift that is. How could we think that you could say no to that for the prospect of being in a sexual relationship? And then finally, we'd say Christ will put you in a family. Say yes, it will say no to a relationship. And it will say no to sometimes loved ones as they reject you for what you've come to believe. But remember what Christ says to the disciples in Mark chapter 10. They said they've left everything to follow him. And he says, you'll have mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters in this life and salvation in the age to come. Saying you will leave. You will have to leave your relationships sometimes. But in Christ, you will experience a new family. And it says this, the strength of your relationships together as a church, the strength to which you really believe that you are a family and you live out that reality as a community, will be whether or not the gay person coming in says this is plausible. If they believe that they will experience love in this community, if they, will, if they actually believe that we, we will love each other as the New Testament envisages, then suddenly the single life with Christ becomes plausible. So let's regain our confidence to be missionaries in this foreign land. We live in a foreign land of kind of obsession with sex. They might think we're homophobic, but we'll show them that we love them. They might think we're anti-sex, but we say no. We have a high view of sex. We acknowledge its power. They might say we're calling them to something impossible, but we'll tell them that we've found a love in Christ that is far better than the love of any person. We'll invite them to die to sinful desires, and perhaps even the prospect of a relationship, but in doing so, they will find a greater joy in Christ. And each one of us is called to live out this reality in our lives. If we're married, to remember that our marriage is ultimately just a pointer to our union with Christ. If we're single, that we live out a single celibacy that points to the fact that we have found a love that is better than life. Either way, we live with the reality that our lives are not our own, that we were bought with a price, and that as we follow him, we experience love and joy that is far better than a life without him. Can I pray for us?
Lord, we want to come to you now and say, we want to trust you. We want to believe the promises that you say. That even though we may be called to give up lots of things, lots of even good things, that we have found a love that is better than life. That we are like those who've found treasure hidden in a field. And we're willing to give up everything to lay down what wasn't of you and to come and experience joy at your hand forevermore. To experience a love that is better than life. I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know that or doesn't believe that, that you would show them the depth of your love. That we would show them that, that you, that life with you is better. And that we get the privilege of showing, of living, of showing and demonstrating to the world this better story. Help us to have confidence again, to be a people who are willing to have the hard conversations with the people around us, to point them to you and to introduce them to the one whose love is better than life. Amen. 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 Oh, thank you, guys.